Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beversdorf and physical therapist Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Welcome to season three of the Movement Logic Podcast. I'm Laurel Beversdorf. I'm here with my co-host and one of my buddies, Dr. Sarah Court, DPT. So we are going to Reggae Fest tonight at the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> Maybe. No, we're going. Okay. We, we're, who knows? I'm, I have, it should be fun. I think so. I've never been to the Hollywood Bowl. That is the part that I'm most excited about. It's just for you to see it because it's so iconic. It's really, really cool. Well, so Sarah and I are here batch recording episodes for the season, having a good old LA time. And we are also today in this particular episode talking about the tendency for people to underload, mm -hmm. right? Not just women. And uh, so we're going to get into that soon. But we've also been reading some reviews from folks. And so today we're reading a review left on Apple Podcasts by Yogi Cyclist. Oh. And Yogi Cyclist gave us five stars. Love it. And Yogi Cyclist writes, although I am not a teacher, um, clearly they are a yogi. And a cyclist. Although I am not a teacher, I fall into the category of a mindful movement person needing to approach movement in a cerebral manner, questions galore on details. I thoroughly enjoyed and found this podcast so relevant, very focused, and no fluff. Congratulations on your debut. So we got this one early on. They like our cerebral manner. Um, yeah. Um, I, think, I think that's a compliment. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I also think that they're being very generous in their no fluff yeah, right. description. Because every now and then there's some fluff. There's a little fluff, um, but it's it's very, uh, it's it's like very charming fluff maybe, oh, which yeah. is what, you know, is important. Charming fluff. I, I feel like charming fluff is yet another t-shirt. Charming fluff. <laughs> we just have so many t-shirt ideas. Maybe we should stop podcasting and just sell t-shirts. I mean. Okay. Well, today let's get into our topic, which is about underloading. And actually how common it is, again, not just among women, as it turns out, it's possible that on average, maybe a slight majority of all people, male and female, trained and untrained lifters are underloading. The evidence from the research I'm going to share with you today, I found on one of my favorite blogs, the Stronger for Science blog, and the evidence certainly supports this idea and also what I've anecdotally noticed in training women, specifically in my case, women who work out from home, which is that many have, from what I can tell, weights that are some, some of them a little too light for the exercises they're doing in general. And I think that when we share this research with you, we'll talk about it. Keep in mind that these are people who have access to fully equipped gyms. And then I think what we can then maybe extrapolate from that is like, if you don't have access to a fully equipped gym and you're working with the limited equipment that you have at home, 
that you actually might be more, even more inclined to underload. I, at least I am a little reluctant to go out and spend money on stuff that I want to be really, really, really sure I need. So I think it's easy to delay getting the heavier kettlebells or getting the, the barbells. Or frankly, <laughs> frankly, even even knowing that that's something that you need to do. I yeah. mean, you know, I especially for a long time, I was like, yeah, I've got, you know, I was tossing around weight that I was like, well, this is heavier than, you know, some people might be. Like I considered like, well, I've got my 25 pound and my right. 30 pound kettlebell, my 35 pound kettlebell. And that felt significant. And it didn't occur to me that maybe at some point I needed to go any higher than that. It just seemed like, well, this, I, it feels heavy to me. Right. 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 So let's get right into it. We're actually going to, I'm sorry, Yogi Cyclist, there's not going to be as much fluff in this episode. Oh, no. <laughs> well, there might be. That's what I'm here for. Okay. The first study, which I'll link in the show notes that uh that we'll, we're gonna look at is this this one called self-selected resistance exercise load implications for research and prescription so self-selected load we're gonna look at the difference between self-selected load versus self-selected rep range here and the connection between those two things so in this study researchers asked 160 trained subjects what load they'd normally use to perform sets of 10 reps on the bench press so it'd be like, hey, Sarah, I want you to go pick a weight you think you can bench press 10 times. And then Sarah would go over to the rack or that would choose the plates to put on the barbell that she thought she could lift 10 times. Okay. Then the researchers had the subjects complete the set to failure. So now I'm going to flip it on Sarah and I'm going to say, okay, Sarah, you're actually going to just do as many reps as you can until you reach failure. So possibly more than the 10 you told me I was originally going to take. Well, I asked you how many you could, how much weight you could lift 10 times. And, and so I didn't tell you how close you should get to failure. Mm -hmm. I just asked you how much weight do you think you could lift 10 times? And now I'm going to say, I'm not going to say go do 10 reps. I'm, I say to you, go do as many reps as you can until you can't do another rep. And that is how failure is often defined is going to a point at which you go to press the weight and you can't. And guess how many reps on average these subjects completed? Well, I would say this. I have a feeling it's more than 10. Right. And, and listen, if it's more than 10, that's really super normal. And that is not the definition of underloading. If you were to grab a weight and press it 12 times and reach failure, I would be like, wow, you are really accurate in your load selection because in this case, Sarah, in selecting that weight, if she had only pressed it 10 times, had theoretically left two reps in reserve or had worked to an RPE eight. We're going to link two episodes in the show notes. If you don't know what we're talking about when we use the terms RIR reps in reserve or RPE, we have a couple of episodes on that. We're not going to get into it in this episode, but what happened actually in this study is that they actually were able to perform 16 reps mm. of the bench press. And that was an on average. Okay, mm -hmm. so on average, people could complete 16 reps, and a quarter of them could complete 19 reps. Jeez. So these people selected a weight that was too light. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's too light is that basically their goal, okay, so now we have to talk about what their goal was. The goal was to increase muscle size, aka to induce hypertrophy. In order to induce hypertrophy, we have to get closer to failure than that. 
In fact, I think that you probably want to get within two reps, one, one, one plus one or two reps, right? So, so between one and three reps shy of failure to, to cause hypertrophy to happen. And so I just, I don't know, Sarah, what do you think? You think they're on the road to bigger muscles? Hypertrophy can happen with any amount of load, right? It's not exclusive to heavy load. Let's say you're, you're lifting a weight that you can lift 19 times, like what some of these people did. That's going to take freaking forever. And, and to increase that, that mass in that way, if I had to do like three sets of 19 of something, right? And then that's just one exercise. Like it's going to take me a really long time. Perhaps it, it might. It, so it all kind of averages out though. Like if you're lifting a moderate load, you're, you're resting more time than you are when you're lifting a lighter load. And when you're lifting a heavier load, you're resting more time than you are when you're lifting a, a, a moderate load. So basically we kind of trade off the number of reps for the amount of time we have to rest. Typically you're resting longer after heavy sets. The, the 10 rep range is a moderate rep range which means you're gonna select a moderate load for you. What these people did though, is they selected a light load. Right. So they, they selected a light load and they lifted, lifted it within what would be considered a moderate load rep range. And that's the problem. For hypertrophy, that's the problem. It's also the problem for strength. The requirements for strength are different than they are for hypertrophy. Like Sarah said, you can build muscle with light, moderate, and heavy loads as long as you get close enough to failure, and it's harder to do that with a lighter load because you have to lift it more reps. It's arguably more uncomfortable for that reason as well because you're gonna have those muscle burning uh, or fatiguing sensations building and then have to keep going actually <laughs> because if you stop too soon, you're just not going to send a signal to your muscles that they need to make themselves bigger. But strength, the requirements for strength are different. We don't have to get as close to failure to get stronger mm. typically, but mm. we also have to be lift, lifting at least moderate to heavy loads to get stronger. If we're lifting lighter loads, like these people were, mm -hmm. we're probably not gonna build strength. We're probably gonna build something more along the lines of strength endurance. Mm -hmm but only if we're getting close enough to failure, right, right? right? I mean, it's highly possible that if you select a light load and work within a moderate rep range, you're really just wasting your time. <laughs> and, and I say that, and I say that not to mean that there's not value in movement. Most people who lift a weight, the goal is either strength or some related outcome to strength. Strength is, a, is, the, is the outcome of multiple different adaptations in the body. One of those is hypertrophy. So not all strength increases result in hypertrophy, but all hypertrophy, I think we could safely say, does probably yield some amount of additional strength, all right? Are we in Venn diagram territory kind again? Kind of, I love it. You know, <laughs> my brain just sort of goes there. But first of all, we gotta know what the goal is. Their goal is building muscle. They're probably not gonna build muscle by underloading to that extent. All right, so Stronger Besides also presented a meta-analysis titled, Are Trainees Lifting Heavy Enough? Self-Selected Loads and Resistance Exercise, a Scoping Review, an exploratory meta-analysis. So Sarah, just real quick, what is a meta-analysis? So meta-analysis is when you take a whole bunch of studies that have already been performed and you, you know, you go through a whole, I'm not going to go that deeply into it, but like you, you select the ones that are better quality and then you take the data the results that they all achieved in their studies. And obviously it has to like be with the same type of, uh, uh, investigation, right? The, the goal of the, the, the research has to be the same. And then you extrapolate all the data and then you have this much bigger data pool from which you can then run your statistical analysis and, and draw certain conclusions. It's a way, it's a much higher level of research than something like a single case study or a cohort study or 
anything where like, it's just, this is the paper running this experiment for maybe the first time, you know, so a meta-analysis means enough people have done this research that we can take all of the data and look at it. And that's going to give us just much more accurate information that way. Right on. Okay. So this meta-analysis incorporated a number of studies that looked at this idea of underloading. And so the investigators asked participants, how much weight would you select? Again, this is about self-selected load. Okay. How much weight would you select in this exercise to perform one set of 10 reps? So really similar to the bench press study. They also, in some studies, more vaguely asked, so I'm giving you like a more specific question. Now this is a more vague question. What resistance intensity would you select to get a good workout? <laughs> okay. So again, like that, that one's like really devoid of a goal. It's like a good workout is <laughs> what not, even is that's that? not a goal. Well, it's not a measurable thing. No. So the primary meta-analysis <laughs> found that the typical self-selected load was 53.14% of a 1RM. Hmm. Now, again, those same episodes that I said I would link in the show notes that tell you about RPE and RIR also go over what it means to have a percentage of a one repetition max, which is what RM stands for. But here, here it is in a nutshell. If you are training heavy, you are training at a percentage of 85% and up of your, and this is your individual one repetition max, which you can either determine or estimate or predict, right? If you are training using moderate loads, which could still build strength, certainly could build hyper, uh, build muscle mass. You are training within a range of 70 to 85% of a one RM. If you are selecting loads that are of a lower percentage than 70% of your 1RM, you are training with a light load and you could theoretically build muscle mass with that light load as long as you lift it enough times to where you get very close, like a one or two reps shy of failure, which by the way is a very uncomfortable thing to do with a light load. These people selected a load that was 53.14%. Let's round up 55% of a 1RM. So Sarah, what was this, light, moderate, or heavy? This is very light. This is a light load. And it is not something that is going to build strength. Right. So it's kind of wild when you think about, like, like I don't know, when I, when I think about that in terms of self-selecting a load, it, you know, and that question about like, oh, you're getting a good workout. Like, it just really <laughs> reminds me of... Like when I, when I first would try to like interact with weights, let's just say, and I would go to, I remember this really clearly, I would go to the Equinox in Pasadena because I was teaching yoga there. So then I would sort of be there. So afterwards I would like, I'd go find a kettlebell and I think I found, I think I was like, I don't know. I picked a kettlebell that was like maybe 50 pounds, 40, 50 pounds. It was, it was oh, heavy, nice. relatively heavy. Okay. And I would do some squats kind of holding it. I don't even remember like, I don't remember what I was doing. But I would do that. I'd do a bit of it. And then I'd be like, that was good. And then I would, I would put it back and then I would leave, you know, and I just had no idea what I was doing or any sort of like numerical value, like where that fell in terms of what was heavy to me or not heavy. But it is kind of wild that, that we're going off of like this vague sense of something 
And then I think also about now, now that I lift things that are legitimately for me heavy, meaning for me, they are in that 80 there, you know, sometimes 70, sometimes 80, sometimes 90% of my one RM. And I'm like, oh, heavy is a completely different feeling mm. kind of a thing because mm. you cannot, the higher it goes, the fewer reps you're doing. And sometimes in my program, that's, you know, that I follow this training program and I'll look at him like, oh, what am I doing today? You're doing a deadlift. It's this amount. You're doing two sets of like three reps or something like that. And I'll do it. And I'll be like, thank God it wasn't four reps. Like <laughs> the heavier the thing gets, like when you get into that really seriously heavy range, you're not faffing about with 16, 17, 18, nine. you literally cannot. And it's such a different feeling to be picking something up, knowing that you couldn't lift it more than three or four or five times. It's a totally different thing. And the, I don't know, it's kind of hard to, de to describe as I'm thinking about it, but the feeling in your body of doing mm. that kind of work is entirely different than picking something up and you're like, well, this feels kind of heavy, but you could then do like three sets of 10 of it. Yeah. It also feels really, really different than doing yoga or Pilates. Oh, big time. <laughs> big time. And not in a bad way. No. I think it's just important to note that it is, you should not expect to feel the same. No. I also want to say something about this feel it out approach that you had, Sarah, because mm -hmm. I had one similar. I would kind of walk into the gym and inevitably I would start with bicep curls. Oh, nice. I like it. <laughs> and inevitably I would do a set of 10. Excellent. And I would inevitably work my way up to doing three sets of 10 of bicep curls. I love and it. then I'd be like, huh, that, that was cool. What else would I do though, other than bicep curls or three sets of 10? So I kind of like just made it up. Uh -huh. And um, that was a good experience for me to just even be in the gym yeah. and be f like figuring it out myself. And totally. I would say like, if you, if you did a couple of like random exercises like that with maybe a weight that was probably not too, not a moderate load, maybe I was probably underloading as well. Or you're just kind of trial and erroring it and you like, you think like, maybe I could do three sets of 10 with that load and then it ends up being too heavy or whatever. Like it's, it's not a bad way to learn. Mm -hmm. I'm a real try and trial and error type learner. And what I will say is like, if that's your approach long-term, you're probably going to have a higher baseline of strength than had you not walked into the weight room at all. It's better than nothing. It's way better than nothing. In fact, I would say like, that's a fine way to start. Yeah. That's how many people start. So all of that to be said, though, if you do have a goal of getting stronger or getting, you know, a better muscle development happening on your body or you want to build bone, right, a more organized approach that uses the tools that are long established in strength training, like training load charts, RPE, things like that to help you know what to, to lift and also a program that tells you how much to bump it up every week. Like this is going to save you a ton of time. <laughs> yes. Sarah's favorite expression is faffing about. Like, <laughs> it will prevent you from faffing about and wasting your own precious time. Sometimes faffing about is actually really fun. But in this instance, there's, I would say there's a limited amount of faffing that you'd want to do. Yeah. Now, at, at a certain point in the article, Greg Knuckles, who we love Greg Knuckles and we respect his work and we are big fans of Stronger by Science. So I, I, I often reference Stronger by Science a lot on these podcasts. Like he noted that he thought, because Greg Knuckles is a, is a trained power lifter and like won championships and is a strength scientist, right? So, but he noted that there's probably a difference between what these research papers are calling trained lifters 
and what he considers to be a serious lifter, which I, th I thought I thought that was just so interesting kind of knowing his work, which is that you can be a trained lifter. In other words, you could be like Sarah and I walking into the gym and kind of randomly doing stuff for years, making a little bit of progress, but maybe not really kind of riding a plateau probably, right? Or you can kind of be like Greg Knuckles, who's a serious lifter, and you can apply all of the tools that you have freely at your disposal to make sure that you are actually making changes to your body in kind of a scientific, systematic way, such that, like Greg, you become so strong that you win championships. That's not what Sarah and I are trying to do. But anyway, you can be a serious lifter. And it's, I think what Greg means is like, you're going to track your workouts. You're going to write them down. You're going to reference them the next time you go in. You're going to know your load percentages. You're going to know how to use a training load chart. You're going to know how to use RPE, RIR. You're going to apply these tools and you are going to pretty much guarantee that you continue to progress. Yeah, definitely. That's what a serious lifter does. <laughs> it's not always what a trained lifter does, though, as right. it turns out, according to this research. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I am trained enough, or even before I started lifting more heavily, uh, you know, I knew enough about like how to pick a thing up and generally where my shape it. You should, you know, I had some amount of work with weights before so that I guess that would put me in the category of trained versus a, someone who walks into a gym and has no idea, like, how would you even do a, what is a biceps curl? Well, an untrained lifter is someone who doesn't know what a biceps curl is, maybe, but it's also somebody who has never exposed their body to, uh, basically an, someone who's untrained is someone who has never strength trained before. Their body has never experienced that stimulus. Right. You can be somebody who's had your body experience that stimulus and still, as it turns out, not know really what you're doing. Yeah. And this, <laughs> his, his definition of like a serious lifter is, you know, kind of, I guess I am now a serious lifter because I am following a program where, you you're know, not underloading. I'm, I'm sure as shit not underloading. Can you remind us what your deadlift was in February and what it is now? Thank you. As I love proof that you're not underloading. Yeah. Well, the the way you know you're not underloading is your weight is going up, and so I can even I can go I can do you one better. When I started in November of 2022, I was. I would say now probably underloading. And I think that's not uncommon in the beginning because yeah, I, I don't, don't think it's a problem. In yeah, the beginning. no, because I was like, well, I don't know. I don't I didn't know enough at that point to know really what very heavy felt like because I've never really done it before. Sorry. I will say this, that there has been some research showing that people who are untrained can actually do this thing called underloading and still make changes because yeah. they are so sensitive to the stimulus. Right far more so than they are after they are no longer untrained. And then we have to get a little bit more serious. I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt. Keep That's going. okay. So, so when I first started, I picked a deadlift of 70 pounds because that felt like, eh, this is hardish, but not impossible. And then I just kept doing my program and it's a, it's a four week program that you just repeat, 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 because at the end of the four week program, you work on your one, you figure out what is my one rep max now. And in theory, it's gone up and then you enter the new numbers and beep, bop, boop. Now you've got another four weeks, but now you're at this next higher level of load. So I, in February, my deadlift was hundred pounds. So from November to February, I added 30 pounds. What? But again, I think the 70 starting point was a bit too low, Okay. but anyway, and then my most recent, and to be fair, my, my training schedule currently is all wackadoo because 
of a bunch of things work related and I haven't been able to, to do it as as uh, regularly as I usually do and I'm... can I jump in and say something I bet you haven't lost much strength yes I agree because I'm gonna do a whole solo episode on detraining and like what what the timeline is for building strength versus what it is for losing strength and the good news is that you it takes a lot longer to lose strength than it does to build it right which is another reason that strength training is just such a valuable investment yeah anyway keep going so i haven't tested this lately but the last time i looked at it my one rm for my deadlift was 145 pounds wow so over she more than doubled her her deadlift one in RM less than a year in less than a year uh, them's those, uh, <laughs> newbie gains right there. Yes, no, uh, for sure. I feel like, you know, every, I, th- I think honestly, probably 100 would have been a more appropriate place to start, yeah. but yes, in any event, you, you know, you're not underloading when the number keeps going up. That is the name of the game, right? And so if you're not tracking, you maybe don't know that right. certainly if you're not following a program and you're kind of just wandering into the gym and doing whatever, you're probably not going to be able to know that. That isn't to say that wandering into the gym or taking one off like kettlebell classes here or there or whatever isn't going to raise your baseline of strength and it's not it's not for nothing in any stretch of the imagination. But if you want to be a serious lifter, I think the name of the game is to really pursue gains, honestly, to, to pursue results. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the researchers of this meta-analysis also conducted an exploratory longitudinal analysis and it found that subjects self-selected progressively heavier loads over time when they had lower rep targets, but tended to stick with more conservative loads when they had higher rep targets. This is really interesting to me. Can you repeat that? Yeah. So what it means is that over time, if you gave someone a low rep target, if you were like, I want you to select a weight that you think you could lift five times. Okay. That's a low rep target. Yeah. Low rep, you should, when you hear low rep, you should think heavy load. That people selected progressively heavier loads over time when they had low rep targets, mm. but tended to just kind of stick with and get pretty complacent with to take more conservative loads when they had higher rep targets. So a higher rep target would be like 15 reps, mm. right? And so again, if you if you're lifting something 15 times you're probably not that thing is probably not doing the best thing it best job it could do to help you get stronger but 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 it could be helping you build muscle however if your load selection for 15 reps is too conservative you're you're going to be doing neither one and then if you are working at a lower rep range meaning a heavier load what this is suggesting this longitudinal exploratory analysis suggests is that people are just less likely for some reason people are less likely to underload when the rep target is lower. So they're 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 more likely to select a load that would actually that would actually make a change to maybe muscle growth, maybe strength. It's so interesting. It's really interesting. Like like you're like you're literally saying, "Okay, well if I only have to list this 5 times, it could probably be pretty heavy." Right. And one of the things that I when I'm working with people in the clinic and starting to introduce them to the parameters of strength training specifically and how it might be different than what they're used to, right? They're used to this like pretty low weight, but sort of three sets of 10 Mm -hmm. approach. And to be fair, I use three sets of 10 all the time because in a rehab setting, one of the first things we're trying to rebuild for people is endurance, Mm -hmm. not strength yeah right? absolutely i mean it is it is being stronger but it's stronger in an endurance it's it's resilience right and so like you kind of have to get that under your belt but anyway 
the, I, the, I, I kind of have to reiterate for people. And I guess, I guess, you know, sometimes when something is like, well, obvious to you, but maybe you don't realize that it's not obvious to everybody. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was obvious that if I was going to be lifting something heavy, I was not going to be trying to do three sets of 10 of it. But if, mm-hmm. if all you've ever heard in the sort of reps and sets world is the ubiquitous three sets of 10, it's not unfair to think that you might assume that all weightlifting is three sets of 10, <laughs> yeah. including when that shit gets really heavy. Which would be impossible. It would be impossible. So, so it is often, I am often, I find myself surprising my patients very often when I say things like, you're only going to have to lift this six times. And they're like, that's a, that's a number? <laughs> no, really, because like, we don't, we think if you're stuck in that three sets of 10 thing, the number is 10. There's not a world where the number is not 10. So, so that exposing people to this idea that maybe you're doing four sets of four or, you know, five sets of five, my personal least favorite, six (laughs) sets of six, I absolutely detest. But anyway, more to the point, this idea that, that like you could do a workout that has value, but only pick something up four times. It reminds me of how we don't believe something could be efficient or useful enough if it's not, if you're not spending as much time as we think you should be spending Mm -hmm. doing it, right? Laundry detergent Mm -hmm. is mostly water Mm -hmm. because the amount of detergent that you actually need to clean your clothes is tiny. And what they discovered in like marketing research studies is people didn't believe that like a teaspoon of something could, could actually clean an entire, mm. you know, washing machine full of clothing. So they bulk it up with a bunch of water and people look at a half a cup of something like, yeah, that seems like the right amount. Yeah. That's why I get the little laundry detergent sheets now because yes. it's so much better for the environment. You that's know, true. Giant plastic jug away every month. That's mostly filled with water, <laughs> right? And you're going to fill your, your machine with water anyway. Right. To wash your exactly. But that sort of thing where it's like, we have this idea of like, what is the amount that is going to be valuable of something to do. And for whatever reason, we've decided that a rep range under 10 can't, seems like it's not going to do enough stuff. Yeah. For it to, it's not going to be a good use of our time. Which is not the case. Not even remotely. Okay. But I do think this is a good opportunity for us to actually talk about our six month progressive overload, strength training, weight lifting, bone density course. Don't you? Yeah, I do. So our bone density course is a six month course and it includes a six month program within it. It also includes bonus courses like strength training 101 and all about osteoporosis. But the bulk of the content is really the program. And the program is six months because why, Sarah? Because six months is in the research when you are able to start seeing changes to bone density. So if you are going to start doing this kind of progressive overload, no matter what weight you're starting from, you're not going to see any change in your bone density typically until you're past that six month mark. Right. And so we need at least that amount of time to make a change. It's properly programmed, which means that we start you where you are. So in the beginning, we're going to be focusing a ton on technique. So you might be lifting what would be um, more moderate or even lightweight in the beginning for you so that you can really dial in the technique of, of working with a barbell. Now, it is a barbell-specific program, but that doesn't mean that you can't take a lot of the information we're sharing and apply it to using dumbbells and kettlebells. You certainly can. 
We just simply believe that a barbell is the best, most logical piece of equipment that you would want to become familiar with if you want to be able to progressively overload for life. Yeah. Right. And so this is the other thing too. This is a six month program, but that's not to say that like you are going to ideally lift weights for six months and then stop. Like this is, this is basically us helping you get started over a course of time where you will have ample time to learn how to use weights, learn how to strength train, learn how to progressively overload, learn how to progress toward lifting heavy weights. And barbells are the best way to be able to progress for life. But then we want you to keep going when this program ends and, and we'll give you ways of continuing to use our program to continue going, right? So it doesn't end at six months. It's, it's something that we can continue to cycle back on and, and use. You know what it reminds me of, sorry to break in, but I was just thinking while you were talking about that, it reminds me of like, you know, when you see some, a parent helping a child learn how to ride a bicycle with no training wheels. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I remember this, this is how I learned. My dad held onto the back of the bike and I started pedaling and he's running alongside me. And Mm -hmm. at some point he lets go and I kept going. Right. Right, And it's that moment where like, you don't know as the person on like, when did that happen? Right. So in that, in that analogy, in that metaphor analogy story, Laurel and I are like your parent. We're going to hold on to you. (laughs) Is that weird? We're going to hold on to your bike, your metaphorical bike. And we are going to hold your hand the whole way through. And then the, our goal is to make ourselves no longer necessary so that you can then continue to work on your strength for the rest of your life. The course is called lift for longevity for a reason. Yeah. And, and two things that are really important. One, you, you own the course yes. when you buy it. So it's yours forever. You can always, it'll always live in your computer. And then number two is that this course is structured in a way that we have not encountered any others. First of all, there are no like six month programs that are guided with live option and recorded follow-along classes included with it. So a rude awakening for me when I was going from yoga into the strength training world and like I wanted to to get stronger, it's like, oh, I need a program. Okay, I finally got that through my head. I can't can't just be one-off classes all the time. So then I invested in a program and I got emailed a PDF. I was like, wait, where's the program? Where where's the content? Wait, that was literally all you got? The PDF. So the PDF was linked to videos on Vimeo. So that so yeah, so you you're like you're like, how do I do a bent over row? Oh, let me click over to this one minute demo video on Vimeo. and look, that's that's a that's a fine way to be given a program. The thing is, is that it's it's actually very very different though than how yoga practitioners and even Pilates te- Pilates teachers are used to being taught movement. We're used to going to a class where there's a group of people and being guided step by step through what to do in the class, and so. I think that it's more yoga slash Pilates teacher friendly to do the course the way we're doing it. We're offering one live class a week. You don't have to attend live. It's all going to be recorded. We're going to ask you to strength train more than one time a week, but we are not only going to provide you with a demo video of every single exercise that you're going to do in the program. We're also going to provide you with a full length class of every single workout in the program. So you will always have the option to just watch a quick demo and work out on your own, like the rest of the strength training world is doing, or you will always have the option to take the workouts as though it were kind of like a yoga class or a Pilates class for it to be a guided follow along experience. This, I cannot find anything like this, not to mention the fact that we have a physical therapist. (laughs) Who's that? And a strength coach. Who's that? Teaming up. Who are they? To provide you 
with this content. It's it's Sarah and I. You know, we we have a a breadth of knowledge and a breadth of expertise and a breadth of qualifications that it, you also don't always find, right? So right. we have something for you that will give you a taste test Ooh. of what this program is going to be, which is a free webinar. And the webinar is just basically a workout. The way this workout will work is that you'll show up with whatever equipment you have. So if you have barbells, great. If you just have a broomstick, that's also good. And maybe if you have a couple dumbbells and kettlebells, we're going to take you through the experience of a workout. We're also going to do exactly what we're going to do in the course, which is leave time at the end of the workout for Q&A. We're also going to do exactly what we're going to do in the course, which is provide individuals with form check feedback and take questions. So it's going to be very interactive and basically a, an exact replica or slash. It's going to be an example of how this program will be for you to take in its longer form. This is a free webinar. You get a 30-day replay. It's happening on September 14th if you want to attend live. If you can't attend live, again, you will get emailed the replay. You'll be able to take the class a couple times, get a feel for what it's going to be like. And then knowing that's the bulk of the content, like you'll be able to make a better decision about whether or not this is course is something that you want to invest in. Absolutely. Um, so alternatives to this are obviously like to get one-on-one -on -one personal training sessions, mm -hmm. which I will never not recommend. It's a great idea. But in terms of cost, sometimes that can be a major valid objection. Like people just don't have a couple hundred dollars every month lying around to pay their personal trainer. And I think that, you know, that warrants longer discussion. If you don't have that type of money, the cost of this longer form course that, that we're presenting to you is a fraction of that cost with a lot of this. It's not the same thing as working with a personal trainer, but it has a lot of the same benefits yeah. because there's that live real time personal feedback component to it. So if that's interesting to you, make sure you go to our show notes where you can sign up to get the zoom link for our webinar that is taking place on September 14th. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it too. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. And and the other thing is like, if you have been listening to this podcast, this is who Laurel and I are. There's nothing, this is not like, like these people are showing up in that class as well. So just get ready for- <laughs> They'll be there. They'll be, these people will be there. By they, we mean we. We'll be there. All right, another longitudinal analysis compared the effects of self-selecting rep targets. So this is different than self-selecting loads. Now you give them a weight, you give them a load, and you tell them to select how many reps they're gonna do. Mm -hmm. And it found again that people tended to leave about six to seven reps in the tank. Uh, the difference increased with lower loads than with higher loads. So what does that mean? It means that people left more reps in the tank with lower loads, lighter weights, than they did with higher loads. So six to seven reps in the tank, Sarah. <laughs> yes. That's the pretty good distance from failure. That's a that's potentially an, an entire set of lifts away from failure. So you might, if you're a beginner, brand new, completely sensitized to the loads of strength training, make some changes by staying that far away from failure, maybe mm. for a little while. Briefly. But if you have any amount of training under your belt, that's not gonna do much. Um, so here I'm just going to read, quote, almost no matter what, it seems that people gravitate toward loads that correspond to 50 to 50% of a 1RM. Similarly, so that's a lightweight, right? Similarly, with loads ranging from 30 to 70% of a 1RM, 
it appears that most people self-selected sets of about 10 reps. So 30% is a very lightweight, <laughs> and you're going to only do 10 reps of that. 70% is a weight that you could theoretically lift 12 times before not being able to lift it again. And so if you're if you're selecting 70% of a 1RM and doing 10 reps, you're probably you're, you're probably close. doing pretty good. Yeah. And that's a moderate rep range. Mm -hmm. So you're going to make changes to your strength, your hypertrophy. It's not maximum strength. It's probably not. It might not be the best one for bone density, right. but it's good. But, but then there's everything below that, which is like if you're only doing 10 reps of 60%, 50%, 40%, 30%, loading. Yeah. Um, to really simplify it, it appears that the median lifter tends to gravitate towards sets of 10 reps with about 50% of a 1RM if left to their own devices, mm -hmm. if they're just feeling it out, right? Faffing about. Faffing about, feeling it out. Okay. All right. So based on everything I just shared about like the, the the room for error seems to decrease as the load gets heavier or the rep range gets smaller um this bodes well i think for heavy strength training just mm -hmm. in the sense of like you're you're maybe less likely to to faff about <laughs> if you're like given something of substantial weight or given a rep range that's a little lower i mean something happens in the human mind where we're like okay this isn't going to be so bad because i you only have to do a couple of reps or this is heavy. So therefore, um, I, you know, I, I don't know what happens. It, it's, it's interesting. And he even said, he was like, I, I wasn't expecting it to be this many people underloading. The other thing that's really kind of bizarre, in addition to this many people underloading, under, under selecting their rep range is that even after people did a one RM test, like even after they went through the process of determining using a training load chart, most likely, or even just building up to their 1RM, what their 1RM is, objectively speaking, that this did not really decrease their tendency to underload. <laughs> so now all that says to me is that either there's not a goal that's very clear in their minds about what they're trying to do, or if there is, they don't know what's required to achieve it, or they don't know how to use a training load chart. It's like one of those three things is happening here. Or maybe all of them. All of them. The ability to... It's a lot easier to sense what two more reps feels like than what five more reps feels like. Yeah, it, it is. What's the case then too that kind of tracks with this idea that you're less likely to underload with, with smaller rep ranges and heavier loads is that you're also better able to estimate your proximity to failure with heavy loads yeah. than you are with lighter loads. Yeah. You're also better able to predict what your 1RM is using a training load chart when you lift a heavier load to make that extrapolation. So if you lift a weight 20 times to failure, and then you read across the chart and you go, okay, based on that, I, my 1RM should be this. That number you get is much more likely to be inaccurate than if you were to lift a load five times and get really close to failure and then trace across the chart and go, my predicted 1RM is this. That, that number is going to be more accurate. So there's more, just, it looks like when you're lifting light, when you're lifting moderate, it's easier to not get close enough to failure. It's easier to miscalculate your 1RM. It's just it's actually easier to waste your own time. Not to say that lifting light loads, lifting moderate loads is has no value at all. I mean, in our course, bone density course, lift for longevity, you are definitely not going to be lifting heavy every single exercise every single day. Like that also is a recipe for 
not being as successful as you possibly could be with strength training. That That's not good programming. And especially if you're on the newer side, we're not going to have you start out with like, you know, your 90% 1RM. Like it's important to you know, work at a lower load where you are working on your form and understanding like the, you know, where you feel it in your body and what muscles are activated and all of these techniques and skills that you need to acquire so that you can then progress the load and make it heavier. And to your point that you made early on in the episode, Sarah, it's also going to be time spent getting used to the feeling of strength training if you've not been strength training before which is very different than doing yoga, which is very different than doing Pilates. And in some ways, it, it requires a, a gradual and positive identity shift for many for many women especially. Mm-hmm. Just kind of getting on board with this new way of being in your body should be supported by a, a, a relatively less intense load selection, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so no, that, I agree. That's what our program really does is it walks you – with us hand in hand <laughs> toward the skill and knowledge and ability to lift heavy for life. Okay. Another thing that this research showed is that when subjects self-selected loads over multiple sets, they selected slightly heavier loads set to set. So they got a like a first set, they selected their load, then they got a second sec- second try at the second set. And based on the first set, they could go, actually that didn't feel that challenging. I think I could bump it up and then say maybe same thing for the third, fourth, and fifth set. So they were given time to self-select and then Mm self-correct. And so in our program, we are going to encourage the use of warm-up sets, largely for the purpose of not underloading, because what do warm-up sets do, Sarah? Well, so warm-up sets are the Let's say, so if you're doing your, your strength workout, you might do sort of a generalized warm up, which is kind of just bigger movements, getting, you know, getting your body ready for exercise, you know, stretching things, waking things up, da, da, da. Increasing your core temperature is probably the primary reason you do a general warm up. And then you might, you should, I like, we encourage warm up sets, which are sets of the exercise that you're going to do. So let's say, for example, it's a deadlift. Before you do the sets and reps that is appropriate for you for whatever that, you know, today's workout is, you're going to do some prior to that that are lighter on purpose. And so it's sort of twofold. You either already know, like if you're working with a program like I am where everything's plugged in and told to me, you already know what your, like let's say I'm doing a deadlift and it's 100 pounds and it's four sets of three at 100 pounds. Okay, I already know that that's what my work is going to be. So my warm-up sets, I might be picking something that's 50% of that, and then I'll do a set like that. And then maybe I'll pick something that's 75% of it, and I'll do a set like that. So if you already know what your target amount's going to be, you can kind of do the math backwards. The other option is, like these people in this study, if you don't know what the number's going to be, you can use these warm-up sets to help give you a sense of what you think you could do. So maybe you pick something that seems reasonable to you and you start lifting it and you're like, wow, I was actually able to do like 10 of these. Okay, if I can do 10 of it, from what I understand from all of the times I've listened to Laurel and Sarah on this podcast podcast talking about what rep range is heavy, if I can do 10 of this weight, maybe I should add, let me add 20 pounds to this and see if see what that feels like. And, right? and in our course, Lift for Longevity, we actually have 
uh, an entire course called Strength Training 101, where you're actually going to not just have to go and listen to this podcast, but there'll be short, <laughs> concise videos about how to use a training load chart. Right, exactly. So that you you know how to use this chart that you can download off the internet for free and go, well, if I can do 10 reps at this load, if I use this chart, I see that I could probably do five reps at this load. Right. Um, warm-up sets are another way to think of warm-up sets is as a specific warm-up. So if you spend five minutes doing a general warm-up, the warm-up sets you do before each working set or each of the working sets is a specific warm-up. So it's a, it's a specific warm-up in the sense that you get to dial in your form. You get to check in with how you're doing with the movement. You get to practice the movement. Mm -hmm. You get to load the movement somewhat. And then the warm-up ends and the work begins. And the work is where you go, okay, now I'm going to put some weight on the bar that is appropriate to me where I am in my program and where I am in my training. And I'm going to work. And I'm going to let that work be stimulating. Right. I like as well, this was something that you talked about a lot and I, I really like as well, this idea of the working sets being a way to kind of like tone your nervous system in a way, like you're preparing your body for this very different feeling, like we've been talking about, this very different feeling kind of an activity where you're about to pick up something that is legitimately heavy for you, right? So we're kind of, uh, it's a rehearsal right? Yep. Of what that's going to feel like. And it also, then you can be like, oh, well, yes, yeah, supposedly I'm going to a hundred pounds today, but you know what? I slept weird and my mm -hmm. shoulder hurts and I'm tired and I don't feel great. So maybe I'm not actually going to do that to myself right now. And your warm up sets might be a, a good way to kind of check in on like, well, what can you tolerate today? Yeah. And so we combine the very, I would say, scientific approach of using a training load chart with the far more subjective and oftentimes more useful auto-regulatory approach Ooh. of RPE, rate of perceived exertion, slash, and its counterpart, RIR, that together they're a match made in heaven. I mean, I'm just swooning over the use of auto-regulatory here. Well, it's very yogic, right? Like strength training is actually surprisingly, to many who don't, again, really know what it is, they have an idea, a vague idea, based on loose associations and impressions that are often toxic, that are broadcast to them via the toxic fitness culture that they're exposed to on social media, a lot of people don't realize that actually strength training is all about listening to your body. Mm. That sounds like a social media post we should do. Well, there you go. Somebody, our assistant, somebody, will you write that down? <laughs> all right. If you want to know what I really think I always about, want to about know what these you really think. test subjects and why they're underloading, mm. I think it's largely because they lack understanding of some like really key concepts around strength. They don't know how to strength train. Okay. I think the, the goal is probably poorly defined, but I also think that they're human beings mm. and like me, I'm a human being, you're a human being, like all human beings. I suspect underloading is more about feelings mm. or as I like to call them fifis <laughs> of not really wanting to get that uncomfortable mm. or be embarrassed. Oh, so yeah. like, I don't want to get, that uncomfortable by selecting an appropriate load to where doing 10 reps is actually going to be uncomfortable for those last couple of reps. That's another way of saying that those last few reps are going to be stimulating to being able to make a change in my body. Strength training is not always comfortable. It's sure not. And we get used to the discomfort of it. In fact, the discomfort actually becomes a little bit addictive in my opinion. Like I love now the feeling of it getting uncomfortable. I didn't maybe know that I was I didn't know if I was feeling the right type of discomfort discomfort in the beginning. So I think I was a little too ambiguous. I didn't have a coach like walking me mm -hmm. through it all, mm -hmm. you know? 
The other thing I think that happens is like if you're in a research setting or in a public gym, mm-hmm. you don't want to be a f- made a fool, right? right? You don't want to pick up a weight that you're not going to be able to lift because then you look like a weakling. <laughs> and you know what nature does to the weaklings. I mean. So you don't want to become food for the predators. Right. This is another reason why I think it's important that in the beginning, you start with loads that can actually feel pretty comfortable mm. and get used to the feeling of strength training. And I think it's also important to strength train in positive, encouraging environments where maybe people are more likely to share your values, look like you, look like you, have a sense of humor about things, not take themselves too seriously. Who are these people you're talking I about? I mean, I can think of a couple mm. right here in this room. <laughs> so in this room full of two people, I can think of two people. Yeah, no, but this, but here, here's the deal. Yeah. I, I train women who are between the ages of 35 and 65 on Zoom twice a week in my virtual studio. And we have been working on this together for a while, this idea of things getting to be a little uncomfortable. And I've witnessed their transformation from underloading to fucking loading, man. Like their, their weights have gotten big. Awesome. And, and their, their, their amazement at their ability to build muscle and their ability to do a pull-up and their ability to do these things, they never in their wildest dreams thought they would do. And I also get to engage in these really rich and interesting conversations based on the really amazing questions they ask me or the observations they make. So case in point, a student a couple days ago raised awareness to me that she thought that the word failure was a very big bummer. She was like, why do we call it getting close to failure? It just makes me lose all the energy and positivity in my body. And I feel like it's a total bummer. And I was like, I feel you. And you know what? That's a really interesting observation. And it might be really confusing to people who are not familiar with strength training lingo to hear like, we want to get close to failure. (laughs) Um, But because ironically, uh, and somewhat poetically, like the closer you get to failure within a range, you don't have to go to failure. You don't even have to get that super duper, like one rep shy of failure. But if you get close enough to failure, which in these research studies, we're finding people just aren't getting close enough to failure. Right. If you do get close enough to fail, you're more likely to be successful. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the funny thing. But it, requ- it does require that you step outside of your comfort zone. And so um, I also think that it's, it's, it's a good idea to step into different um, communities of knowledge and communities of practice in the sense that I think it's a good idea if you're a yoga teacher or Pilates teacher to step outside of that community of practice regularly and step into a completely different community of practice where you're going to hear different terminology, where things are going to be looked at in a completely different way, where cues are going to land very differently, where the goals are extremely different. Because what it does is it actually expands your lexicon, it expands your repertoire, it expands your capacity, and it expands your ability to really understand movement at its most fundamental level. So, So here we have this word failure, which means something negative in most people's minds. So does stress, by the way, right? Mm -hmm. But in strength training, failure is something we want to move toward. And stress is something we want to apply to our bodies. Because when we stress our bodies close enough to failure, we succeed in making our bodies stronger. (laughs) It's wild, right? It's so cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now I want to talk about healthy boundaries. Oh, seems like a little bit of an abrupt switch of topics. But here's where I'm going with this. It, it kind of comes down to gender lines here because there are there are observable differences between the way men and women behave, most notably in the weight room, in my opinion, <laughs> and about boundaries, healthy boundaries. 
Um, gyms, it's no secret that gyms are toxic environments for lots of different populations of people, not just women. And it's not necessarily all the men's fault. But here's what I think. I think that you're much more likely to be mansplained in a gym if you're a woman. Mm -hmm. And in other words, you're much more likely for a man to come up to you in some way, shape, or form and make you feel like you don't know what you're doing. But this research suggests that men and women equally don't know what they're doing in the weight room. <laughs> Because it was not, there wasn't, there was, the, the, the research didn't find that women were underloading more than men. Right. It actually found that men were underloading as much as women were. So here's what I want to say. If you're a woman in the weight room and a guy comes up to you and tries to tell you how to do something, just remember he's, it's highly likely, it's likelier than not that he doesn't know what he's talking about. I think that's a good thing just to keep in mind. Yeah. And, and I, that you probably know about as much as he does. And you can <laughs> employ the very useful phrase, thank you for your input. Fuck off. As the, as the subtext <laughs> of thank you for your I input. Don't, I, I wouldn't say thank you for your input personally. Um, I just get really annoyed. I don't know if you've noticed this about me, but I don't like being told what to do. What? <laughs> I've never noticed that about Unless you. Unless I ask to be told sure. what to do. I'm not a big fan of unsolicited advice. I mean, I'm the, allergic to it. The, the absolute worst thing you can start a sentence with to me is you should anything. <laughs> right. Because okay. my response is... Why don't you do that? My mother used to say you shouldn't shit on people, Laurel. You shouldn't shit on <laughs> Stop people? Stop shitting on people. That's right. That's right. No, but I'm, I'm just, I mean, I'm sort of joking about the thank you for your input because to me that's a very passive aggressive way to say fuck off. Mm -hmm. But uh, just the, the real point is you're not necessarily doing anything incorrectly and this person mansplaining it to you doesn't necessarily know anything more than you do. Right. And so have you had any negative experiences with men in the weight room? Because I want to share just I just want to share a couple just to like kind of air air this because I think a lot of times we have an idea that an experience will be negative based validly on associations that we've made or experiences we've had in the past. And it's sometimes it's good to hear other people's experiences and to be validated in that way to go like, it's not just me, right? Or yeah. it's not just, the, it's not all gyms necessarily. Right. So um, one time I was using the pull-up machine mm -hmm. and a guy kind of sauntered over with an overconfident kind of swagger. Mm -hmm. And he like flirty oh, kind of no. looked at me a little way. He's like, do you notice that you're you're pulling yourself up in this particular way. And like, why don't you try it this way? And I was like, do you know that it's actually not a good idea to give people unsolicited advice in the gym? Did like, you say that? Oh yeah. I, I, I'm actually not, um, I'm, a, I'm not passive aggressive. I'm aggressive aggressive, <laughs> especially when you trigger me with mm. like things that I find extremely annoying. I, I had two older brothers growing up. I, I know how to assert myself yeah. with, people who are bigger than me with men and with men who are older than me, just ask my father. <laughs> okay. So it's not hard for me in that circumstance to do that, but right. I, but that's because also I'm operating from a place of privilege. I, I've right. never, I've never, I've never been made to feel afraid in, in, in a gym or, you know, honestly, I think I've been fairly fortunate in my life to where I haven't been made to feel afraid in, in the presence of men mm -hmm. either. And I can honestly say that. And I know that Many women, if not most women, cannot say that. I mean, right. don't get me wrong. I've definitely been assaulted, and I've definitely had like random things happen to me. But I don't, I don't walk around afraid because of those things because this, their severity wasn't such that that I would that I would feel afraid that I do feel afraid. But I can understand how somebody who has had anyone, not just women, like anyone who's yeah. been hurt and made to feel afraid would have a hard time in the gym, would feel intimidated. It's not even about violence or assault. It's like just feeling intimidated, like you don't know what you're doing. But here's what I'm gonna say, this guy, it's highly likely he didn't know what the hell he was talking about. 
And I didn't care either way if he did or he didn't. The point of the matter was he made me feel unwelcome by coming up to me and giving me advice I didn't ask him for. I had no idea how qualified or unqualified he was. It's a really super irresponsible thing to do. So a red flag should be even if someone does know, seem to know what they're doing based on what you see, if they're giving you unsolicited advice, they're completely off base. And you should, I think, in my opinion, unless you got a good vibe from it and like it seemed like it was okay to you, but like just know that that's inappropriate behavior. Like I don't think anybody worth their salt who knows anything about strength training or gym cultures would condone that type of behavior. It's inappropriate. Absolutely. Well, what I'm really curious about is after you said this is inappropriate, what happened? He got really uncomfortable. I'm I don't, not, he was not expecting that. I'm I sure think he, he wanted me to be pleasant and smile and sort of like, oh, thank no, you. Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. I was what? like, no, I no. This is go away, basically. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, another thing that happened to me in the gym is I was actually, it, it was a mild form of sexual harassment where I was like, mm. I was at the machines and this guy just kept like giving me this really aggressive, prolonged sort of look you up and down, check Ugh, your body out gross. type stare. Mm. And that was enough for me to report him to management. Oh, good for you. That's yeah. awesome. Well, yeah. Cause like, I don't have to be made to feel unsafe no. in a gym that I pay just as much money to be there as he does. Exactly. Um, and that was a whole thing. I've tried to think, I was trying, while you've been talking, I've tried to think of like, I had had examples of feeling like I got, you know, mansplained. I, I, there's one that I do remember from forever and ever ago. So I would call this in my faffing about phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think, it, I think this was like even pre being a yoga teacher. I was on some machine and I guess I was doing it too quickly for this one man's preference. And so he came over and he was basically like, Hey, hey, slow down little lady. Or it was kind of that vibe oh, yeah. where he was like, you know, and then he was like, well, the eccentric phase of the blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And I was like, you know, you lost me at little lady basically. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He really actually said little lady. It, I don't remember. It was a while ago, but it was, it was along those lines. It was like, Hey there, girly. Slow your roll kind of a thing. There's so much infantilization of women. Uh And in the weight room, it is rampant. Yes. And also in weight rooms, quote unquote, weight rooms designed for women, we've got these tiny little pink dumbbells, right? That look like, they look like doll toys. I mean, so I, the topic of this section of our podcast (laughs) is healthy boundaries and I'm getting there promise stay with me I'm, I'm staying I don't actually I like I think there's like tons of positive male energy in the gym and I'm really super inspired for example I go to a CrossFit gym and it's like 50% men 50% women and like I've had nothing but like total respect um from all of the gentlemen there like I definitely don't want to come across as being like someone who is who hates men <laughs> I love men sure and, and I just think that it's more likely that a man will try to explain something to a woman in a gym and make her feel uncomfortable or a man will make a woman feel uncomfortable by looking at her in an inappropriate way than it is for the opposite to happen. And so I just want to point out that like there are real reasons why women don't feel welcome in a gym. And what this research here is suggesting that if you have been made to feel unwelcome by somebody who pretends to know more than you, there's a high likelihood that they don't know what they're doing. So you could just disregard them. And also they're being jerks in the first place by making you as a woman feel unwelcome. I think it would be fantastic if either you or I or a listener having listened to this episode and understanding that most people are only lifting around 50% of their one RM. If you are in a gym setting 
and a man or other domineering type of person, like perhaps a woman might do it, let's be fair, comes up to you and says something that a great response would be, oh, well, are you lifting more than 50% of your 1RM? Because research shows that even trained lifters are not. That would be fun. I would love for someone to do that and then just report back on what happened. That feels like a boundary, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, The other thing I want to say about boundaries is that Women are often, I think, made to feel like they don't know what they're doing when it comes to lifting weights, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to lifting barbells. And uh, that we're often encouraged as well through media and image and representations of women lifting weights that we should be lifting really small weights. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we, we often also hear advice to women that like, you have to learn healthy boundaries. You have to learn your no. You have to learn to use the word no more often. I think it's equally important in the context that we're speaking about today to suggest that women also need to learn their yes. Mm -hmm. They also need to learn when to say, yes, I am ready. I can do this. I am competent and capable of learning this. I have every equal right to be in this space and to be lifting with this equipment as my male counterpart and often younger male counterpart. So healthy boundaries mean learning your no, but they also mean learning your yes. And and a big way to learn your yes in strength training is just make sure you're not underloading. Because if you're underloading, you are actually saying no. You're saying no to strength. You're saying no to longevity. You're saying no to bone density. You're saying no to staving off the loss of muscle, the loss of bone that speeds up as you age. So start saying yes, start loading appropriately, which is going to require that you learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. And it might require some guidance. And it might also require that you start to just really much more readily disregard unsolicited advice or any type of presence in any gym that makes you feel like you're not welcome. You say no to the stuff that is garbage so that you can yes the stuff that is not garbage, which is yourself. Yeah. And and here's the deal too. Like you can do all of this at home. You don't have to even go to a gym and worry about any of this bullshit. But the thing about working out at home, Sarah, is mm. that we don't have a fully equipped gym. Right. And the psychology of money is tricky in that we can be working with a 20 pound kettlebell and be like, this is hard. And then six months later, we're like, is it still hard? I'm not sure. Newsflash, it shouldn't still be hard. Like if you're properly progressively overloading. And then we get into this mind game of like, do I need to buy another kettlebell though? Because isn't the 20 pound kettlebell just enough? And they're expensive. They're expensive and I don't have the space and da da da. Where then we now have this additional barrier to being able to sufficiently load, which is that we are now reliant on our own willingness to invest in that bigger weight. So this all kind of comes around to the fact that like this, this points to why Sarah and I really heavily promote the, the use of a barbell because the barbell is a, it's a one-time purchase. Like basically you get the equipment, you've got it, and you're going to be able to sufficiently load forever because it's a completely adjustable weight. Not to mention, um, if you're trying to build bone density or sufficiently load your lower body, right? At a certain point, you're going to outgrow a kettlebell. Oh, hundred percent. You're basically going to have to use upper body strength to sufficiently load your lower body with a kettlebell. And we all know that our lower body is lots and lots stronger than our upper body, probably twice as strong at least than our upper body, just due to the size of the muscles down there, right? So 
at a certain point, you, you may be able to continue to progressively overload your upper body with kettlebells and dumbbells, but you're going to reach a limit on your ability to continue to progressively overload your lower body. So Sarah went from a 70 pound deadlift mm -hmm. to now deadlifting 140 pounds. There is such a thing as a 200 pound kettlebell, but good <laughs> luck picking it up. Good Lord. And also, I mean, so I also made a, an Instagram post a little while ago where I show and you know, it's, it's a little goofy for dramatic effect, but it's actually completely factual. Let's say I'm trying to do a squat with a hundred pounds. If I'm trying to pick up two 50 pound dumbbells, I, I literally cannot, mm -hmm. but I can go to the rack, put a hundred pounds on a bar, put it on my back and squat it. No problem. So that's, that was a like super clear indication for me. It was like, all right, this is, I have topped out in terms of what my arms can do relative to the amount I need for my lower body. Yeah. All right. All of this to say, really the whole point of this particular podcast was know that underloading is really easy to do and don't do it. Your time has value. While you're at it, to make sure you're not underloading, have a clearly defined goal and know how to reach it. If you don't know how to reach it, find places, resources, people who can help you reach it. Sarah and I are a couple of those people, but obviously there are a lot of people who know what they're talking about when it comes to strength and conditioning. And so seek out somebody who can help you make sure you're not underloading. And then finally, not underloading is really about having healthy boundaries. It's about knowing not just your limits, but also knowing the minimal effective dose, knowing the threshold that you need to reach to make a change. And so knowing your limits as a woman, I think is largely because of uniquely how women are treated or expected to behave in our society versus men. It's, it's about learning your no, and it's, it's about learning how to use the word no. But in the case of strength and conditioning, it's also about learning your yes. It's about learning that you are capable of lifting more than a pink dumbbell. You probably know just as much as the dude next to you in the gym. That's what research shows. And you have everything available to you, just like men do, to build the same type of capacity that men do, as long as you allow yourself to say yes to strength training, to say yes to progressive overload, to say yes to external load, and yes, maybe even yes to lifting with barbells, which will allow you to say yes for life. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. I hope you've enjoyed this episode about underloading and why it's just another example of having poor boundaries. And you can check out our show notes for links to references that we mention in this podcast, including the wonderful blog post, Most Lifters Train Too Light by our friend Greg Knuckles at Stronger by Science. He doesn't know who we are. No. We just, we, I call him my friend because we, he's, we, he's, he's made a big difference in my life. We aspire to a friendship with yeah. him. You can also visit the Movement Logic website where you can get on our mailing list to be in the know about sales on our upcoming tutorials and courses, one of which is our bone density course, Lift for Longevity. Don't forget to sign up for the free webinar happening on September 14th, where you get to taste test the program in the form of a workout and basically just like a super fun hangout session with Sarah and I. It's gonna be great. If you can't attend live, that's totally fine. You'll get the recording emailed to you with a 30 day replay. Alrighty, thanks for joining us on the Movement Logic podcast. It helps us out enormously that if you liked this episode, you wanna support Sarah and I's work on this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See, See you, you next week. week.